0: Welcome to Crashing the War Party. I am here with my co-host Daniel Larson on a special edition of the show as we are in the midst of a serious crisis with tensions between the United States, Ukraine, NATO, and Russia reaching a fever pitch. As of this recording, the Russians have sent peacekeepers into Eastern Ukraine after President Vladimir Putin recognized the breakaway republics of Luhansk and Donetsk as independent in a fiery speech on Sunday. The Biden administration has correctly declared that this falls short of the invasion that they had anticipated and so far qualifying that has not ordered the full tranche of sanctions or any new military assistance to Ukraine. But things are really tense. In, this next se- in the next segment, we will be talking to longtime nuclear weapons expert and nonproliferation non-pro- advocate Joe Cerencioni, about Biden's nuclear strategy and threat inflation about the Chinese arsenal. But first, let's talk a little bit more about the last few days, Daniel. Dan, I know uh, you don't have a crystal ball, uh, but <laughs> do you have a sense about where this is all headed? Has Putin fooled us all and is moving towards a full-scale invasion after all? Uh,
1: well, it, thing, things aren't looking great as, as of this moment. Of uh, we, course, we heard his... Uh, rather uh, ranting, uh, long speech uh, earlier this week, where he laid out his his grievances and uh, and his sort of his view of Ukraine as not really being a real country or as having been carved out of Russia and therefore not really counting as a country in the same way that other countries uh, should be recognized. And it's and then that was capped off by his statement that he was going to recognize uh, the independence of these uh, separatist republics, these statelets that they've they had already previously carved out of Ukraine during the first crisis, during 2014. Uh, and at first it seemed like this might be a way for him to to settle for having uh, gained something or having something that he could point to as uh, a result for all of the the buildup and the tension. Uh, but then there were questions about whether the the republics would be recognized within their de facto borders their de facto line of control, or if that would also extend to areas occupied by Ukrainian forces that belong to those regions that the, the separatist republics technically claim. And of course, if the recognition extends into deeper into Ukrainian territory, that would imply probably a Russian offensive against Ukrainian forces, and then uh, the, war, the, the bigger war might be underway. Um, And now we're seeing, uh, just today, uh, Putin was asking uh, the the Federation Council for permission to use Russian forces outside of Russia. And so this may be uh, a prelude to a larger operation than the one that we've seen so far. Um, I certainly hope that's not the case. Uh, I I remain skeptical that we're going to see the the kind of full-scale invasion that uh, has been warned about as the worst-case outcome, uh, simply because it... It, is, it would be so costly and risky uh, for the Russian government to embark on something like that. And I don't think they're interested in, in taking that big of a gamble. Uh, they might be interested in conducting a smaller, more limited operation uh, to, to, in sort of mock imitation of the air war uh, in Kosovo as, as a way of sort of copying and mocking NATO for its intervention in the past. Yeah. Uh, and also uh, modeling it on the August 2008 war with Georgia. And there are quite a few similarities between the 2008 case and this one, with the difference being that the Ukrainians have so far not obliged the Russians by launching their own escalation, uh, whereas Sakashvili did that uh, and ended up provoking the attack that then uh, led to their defeat. Uh, so... The, the, the good news is that the, the ukrainian government seems not to be taking debate on this uh, the question remains whether uh, the russians are waiting for them to provide them with a pretext or if they're going to try to to create one on their own and that's i think that's what we don't really know yet uh, is whether they would actually do that um so it's it is very worrying uh things are looking worse than they did just a few weeks ago and uh so obviously we hope that doesn't happen, but it, it very well might and by the time this is already uh, being published.
0: Yeah, I, I, I'm looking right now at a report. Now, obviously, this uh, recording will be at least a day old by the time that you that our listeners hear it. But the Washington Post was reporting this morning at 9.15 a.m., which would be Tuesday, Eastern time that Russia said that its recognition of separatist areas in eastern Ukraine includes territory now held by Ukrainian forces, raising Western fears that Moscow intends to invade more of Ukraine's territory after sending troops into the rebel-held region. I don't know how much uh, of that has been confirmed yet, but that does that raises the ante a little bit um, because then their recognition of Um, The breakaway republic's territory is parts of it are already occupied, have been already retaken by Ukrainian military. So that would set up a clash between the Russian uh, peacekeepers and um, the opposition leaders and and their militias uh, and the Ukrainian forces. And I agree with you that President Zelensky has been rather restrained, you know, in the last 24 hours in terms of responding to this provocation, uh, I'm looking also at world leaders and how they've been responding. And, and so far, I don't see a lot of countries lining up to support Russia's position on this. I mean, including Russia, uh, including China, there was uh, their foreign minister, uh, Yang, had come out and said that they support integral, uh, the integrity of uh, territory and, and sovereignty of all countries, I don't believe that he mentioned Ukraine specifically, but we know what he was talking about. And also, he uh, didn't overtly condemn Russia, but said, you know, let's 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 engage in some restraint here. And so that would be Russia's chief potential ally has, is is still kind of walking a fence. And then the rest of the world leaders, I mean, the ones that that we know uh, the. European leaders have all come out with strong condemnations, but then, you know, you know NATO member Turkey has come out con- condemning the move as well. As well, um, Germany had come out this morning, meaning Tuesday, saying that it was putting a pause on the Nord Stream 2 approval process. So, so things are happening rather quickly. And I, I believe that if there are further provocations, you will see the sanctions that the United States have been talking about might be unleashed, and that could that could touch off a lot of economic uh, destabil- destabilization for both sides. And I don't think that is what we need right now, considering inflation. So I think the Biden administration is, as of this recording, being very careful about how to respond.
1: Right, and the the early signals that they've been giving is that they they were prepared to impose sanctions on the separatist republics themselves, and on anyone doing business with them right. directly, and and the officials that were directly involved in the decision. Uh, but they were laying off on the the larger, uh, broader sanctions that they've threatened to impose on Russia, uh, if if there is in fact a, a larger invasion. Uh, and I think that's the right approach. There there are a lot of people who are very trigger happy when it comes to sanctions. Obviously, we had lots of people who were calling for sanctions even before now, uh, as if that would have helped. And, and now you have the same group of people insisting that we go to the maximum level uh, and, and apply as many as possible, uh, even before the, the major offensive has started, uh, On the assum- I guess on the assumption that the offensive is going to happen no matter what. But, but I think that's a mistake. Uh, once you pull the trigger on the, all those sanctions, Russia has no incentive not to escalate at that point. In fact, what we've seen, what we know from history is that when you try to sanction a major power uh, in six situations like this, the major power will then respond by becoming more aggressive rather than less. And so that's that's the, the thing we have to be wary of uh, when we talk about using these sanctions, uh, you know, ostensibly as a deterrent, but really what people want to use them for is as a punishment uh, before the crime even takes place. And so that's the the thing that I'm concerned about that in the, their, in the rush to to demonstrate opposition to Russian behavior, uh, we may end up uh, triggering or, or provoking more of the behavior we don't want. Right. Uh, and, and we see that in smaller cases with the sanctions regimes that we already have in place. So that, that's something that has to be borne in mind.
0: I, what, what, what worries me is a rush to send military assistance to opposition militias and other groups fighting on the ground in ukraine and i you know as a person who's on twitter all the time i have been seeing people with their hair on fire for the last 24 hours calling for all sorts of assistance to be sent over to ukraine in this and and, and a and almost a euphoria that they had been right all along, that Putin wants to reconstitute the Soviet Union and he's not going to rest until he takes all of Ukraine and we need to start helping them now. And that makes me very nervous because we we know where that goes. We've seen it in Afghanistan. We've seen it in Somalia. We've seen that in Syria. uh, This idea that we could fund and and send military weapons to so-called moderate uh, opposition groups on the ground to, you know, um, stave off any, an, inv- an invasion.
1: Well, I think when we're talking about weapons deliveries, there, there aren't enough weapons and, and the right kinds of weapons to deliver to Ukraine in any case in the timeframe that we're talking about. Uh, and now, and obviously the U S and other allies have been providing them with weapons, uh, during this buildup and, and in the years prior to that. But th- there is this, it is sort of a knee-jerk uh, impulse to just throw weapons at the problem on the assumption that that, that will make any difference on the ground. And I, I don't think, if, if it came down to a Russian, a full Russian assault, I don't think there's anything that we could provide to them in in the next week or two that would make a bit of difference. And you would just simply be handing that equipment over to the Russians, probably, yeah. uh, or, or you know, or it would simply go unused. So, and I, th- I think Sam Cherup has made an argument about how these weapons deliveries, while they they signal solidarity and support, they're not actually going to make any practical difference if things go really badly. Uh, and so, there's, I think, a lot of a lot of the talk about sending weapons is just a, a way of signaling what what you think uh, about the conflict, but it's not. Uh, it's not going to be helpful, and, and I, I think that's the same problem we have with sanctions. There, there's because we're so used to applying sanctions all the time in in every scenario, uh, we we don't. We, first of all, we don't appreciate the potential for for those sanctions to backfire, and we also don't really think about uh, how useful they're going to be in in either changing behavior or discouraging behavior uh they they simply are, are looking for a reason to to signal their support uh whether it's productive or not and and so in that way we can end up making things even more difficult for the people we're supposedly trying to help uh, and, and that's uh, obviously that's no of um, no use to anybody
0: I'd like to ask you a question I know what we've spent a lot of time on the show talking about the United States and its role in getting us to this place today that a lot of bad policy decisions and particularly the nato expansion uh, the way that we have treated russia the the numerous uh, treaties and agreements that you know we have flouted over the years have led us to this moment of crisis that we're not off the hook but you know his speech yesterday putin's speech yesterday scared a lot of people because it did sound like he didn't recognize Ukraine as a proper country, that he wanted to reconstitute the Soviet Union and bring in all those uh, former Warsaw Pact countries back into the into the fold. You know, as somebody who has written about this for many years, Dan, how do you feel? Were, were we wrong about Putin? Were we wrong in our assessments or uh, is there something else going on here? How how concerned are you?
1: Oh, I mean, I, I, I don't. Think he's actually interested in reconstituting the Soviet Union? I think. I mean, what what a lot of a lot of what he said in that speech was a lot of grievances about uh, losing territories that had historically been Russian territories or had been Russian territories back in in the pre-revolutionary days. Uh, And so, I mean, I I don't know that he's actually interested in reconstituting the Russian Empire either. But it's it's not simply the Soviet nostalgia that it's often made out to be. I think he views russia's neighbors as belonging to uh russia's sphere of influence or as you know as as part of russia's world and he what has has made him so uh bitter i think about western encroachments is that he sees those countries being pulled out of that world um which he sees as not only potentially a, a danger to russia but as uh, kind of a, a violation of the way things are supposed to be, uh, from the way he looks at the world. and so I think he he wouldn't mind if these countries were independent, provided that they were still in russia's orbit and it's it's as they've started to pull away from that orbit that has caused him to react so uh, so angrily. And so so I don't know that we've we've ever really been wrong about him. I think we've we may have underestimated the extent to which he really is of you know, viscerally angry about these developments as opposed to being uh you know, maybe more uh reacting to them more coolly i think he is he is he was clearly visibly angry uh, in that speech uh which which is worrisome because it suggests that he may end up making poor decisions uh that aren't really uh in the best interests of anyone and so that's that's the, the danger that, in a sense, he's, he's been provoked so much, or he, he feels that he's been provoked so much, that he's uh, not making the best decisions.
0: I am proud to welcome Joe Cirincione to Crashing the War Party. Joe is a national security analyst and author with over 35 years of experience working these issues in Washington D.C. He is the author and or editor of seven books including Nuclear Nightmares, Securing the World Before It Is Too Late, and Bomb Scare: The History and Future of Nuclear Weapons. He worked for over 9 years on the professional staff of the Armed Services Committee and the Government Operations Committee in the House, U.S. House of Representatives. He's an adjunct faculty member at the Georgetown University School of Foreign Service and a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. He appears frequently on television, radio, and in the media and is the author of over 800 articles and reports on defense and national security and is also a distinguished fellow at the Quincy Institute. Welcome to Crashing the War Party, Joe.
2: Thank you very much, Kelly. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Thank you, it's our pleasure. Um, I wanted to talk to you a bit about your latest brief for, for Quincy, the Quincy Institute, uh, talking about nuclear policy reform, the nuclear pol- uh, posture review that we are expecting from the Biden administration at any time. And you, you wrote pretty uh, eloquently about this for a recent Washington Post Outlook piece. And you talked about how you know the president had pledged you know, a new link to the pledge uh, to restore American leadership on arms control and nonproliferation as a central pillar of U.S. global leadership. And in March 2021, his administration announced it would, quote, take steps to reduce the role of nuclear weapons in our national security strategy. Um, but then you go on to say news reports, however, suggest that Biden will fall flat or fail on both counts, when his administration issues its nuclear posture review in the next few weeks, can you talk a little bit about what a uh, what a nuclear posture review is and why you think the Biden administration will it will fall flat or at least not um, reach the the goals or pledges that he had made in in those those earlier pronouncements to the American people.
2: Sure, uh, a nuclear posture review is typically done by a president in their first year in, in in office. Bill Clinton was the first one to do so, congressionally mandated, and other presidents have followed since then. It's um, it's part of a development of the or exposition of the national defense strategy the national security strategy it's written by the pentagon pentagon controls the pen this is the fundamental flaw in this process other agencies are involved but it's really the pentagon running the show um it's supposed to outline the overall views of the administration on nuclear weapons and their role in national security strategy this nuclear posture review is going to be a disaster and worse it, it, it's going to be a defeat spun as a victory, meaning it's going to make very few changes to the posture that this administration inherited from the Trump administration, including all the nuclear weapons programs that Trump either initiated or, or accelerated the, the the sort of posture that, that Trump laid out. But and, and, and it's not going to be at all what president biden has stood for in his long and illustrious career he knows more about nuclear weapons than anyone who's been in the white house before him this is a man who spent 36 years in the senate on the senate foreign relations committee eight years as vice president he gets this stuff in a way that nobody else has done and we know what his views are and this is not going to be those views and the reason is that however well-meaning some of the officials have been they have run up against an entrenched nuclear bureaucracy dominated by defense contractors uh, filled with cold warriors still b- believing that nuclear weapons are essential to U.S. national security in large numbers. Uh, and, and they've been unable to change any of those views. And so they're going to present this defeat as a victory, enshrine it as sort of Biden's views, sensible Path for going forward. And that's going to make it extremely difficult to change um, uh, the, the policy going forward for people like me who care about reducing the role in number really of, of nuclear weapons. It's going to be enshrined by the Democratic Party as the as their now views on, on nuclear weapons. It, it, And I can't tell you how disappointed I am in this process because I support Joe Biden. I campaigned for him. I wasn't on his campaign team. I was advising Elizabeth Warren's campaign at the time. But I thought he was the right man for the job, particularly because of this, because I thought he would bring some sensibilities to our dangerous uh, and unnecessary, um, unnecessarily risky nuclear policy. And he has failed to do so. So th- this is this defeat is going to be with us for years. It's going to be extremely hard to overcome.
1: I'm yeah, I'm afraid that's right, Joe. Uh, thanks for coming on the show. Uh, as you've been writing about in your report and, and also in the Washington Post piece, uh, the the review is unlikely to include significant changes or any of the changes that you're looking for. Uh, what what are some of the changes to uh, U.S. nuclear posture that you would advise
2: Biden to make uh, if he if he were uh, willing to do that. Well, that's just sort of the top line why do we have so many nuclear weapons this is a question that many presidents have asked when they've come in the office and what they get is a lot of nuclear gobbledygook uh, and you can see it in the congressional hearings you can see it in the way the uh, uh, generals in charge of our nuclear force talk it's it's very vague it's all about strength and deterrence and flexibility and options but you know we have 5500 hydrogen bombs each one of them many times more powerful than the bomb that destroyed hiroshima this is enough weapons to literally end human life on the planet. This is just our arsenal. And Russia has an equivalent arsenal. And, And yet you don't get an explanation for why. Why do we need all these weapons, all these different types of nuclear weapons? I mean, you may not believe like I do, that that we should eliminate nuclear weapons, or you might not believe as I do in Pope Francis that nuclear weapons are immoral and nobody should have them. That no national security strategy should be based on the mass slaughter of of innocent men, women, and children. You don't have to believe that, but you certainly could believe that maybe we could do with hundred or let's say five hundred nuclear weapons. Why five thousand? About two thousand of which are in the operational stockpile at any one time. This this post review is not going to explain that what it's going to do instead is talk about how the, the need to modernize all of those weapons and give us brand new versions of the bombers and planes and and subs and and missiles that we ha- now have so one of the weapons just one of them is a new ICBM an intercontinental ballistic missile that can span the oceans it's going to cost 264 billion dollars and that's probably an underestimate, $264 billion. We just saw domestic programs, much more vital to the, the the livelihood of most Americans, cut from congressional bills because they were said to be too expensive, like the parental leave policy that Two hundred and five billion dollar program too expensive," said said critics. So it was cut from any 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 bills being advanced in Congress. That there is hardly a ripple, a protest about the two hundred and sixty four billion dollar ICBM, and this was rushed into production in the last few months of the Trump administration. Biden's not going to do a thing about it. Worse. He's not going to change any of the nuclear policies that gave us some such terrifying moments as of January last year, when the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff was so afraid that a, a, a deranged president might launch a nuclear weapon that he rushed to tell his generals, if the president gives you an order, check with me first before implementing it. Biden could change that, make sure that no future president it accidentally or through miscalculation or through madness, might launch a nuclear war by declaring that the United States will never be the first to use a nuclear weapon. By declaring that henceforth, not just the president will be required to issue the launch order, but some other senior official. So have put two people in the loop, not just one. He could do that. He is choosing not to do that in this policy. And that's one of the biggest disappointments. This is something that he doesn't need approval for. The president and the president alone sets the, the launch policy. He could, he presidents have created the current process in the past. This president could change it. He will not. Uh, and that,
1: that's certainly troubling, especially when we see how many arms control agreements are starting to fall apart or or be dismantled uh, in many cases because the U.S. has walked out on them, uh, as we saw with the INF mm-hmm. and Open Skies Treaty. Uh, New START survived just by uh, a slender thread. Uh, at the very last minute, it was renewed by Joe Biden. Um, and now we're looking at in a few years, that treaty will also expire Uh, Given the state of US-Russian relations and the Ukraine crisis that we're seeing, uh, the prospect of negotiating a new arms control treaty to follow up on New START seems uh, to be quite remote now. Um, There were some encouraging signs last year that the strategic stability talks uh, were bearing some fruit or were leading somewhere productive. Uh, Do you think the administration can realistically continue with these talks if there is military escalation in Ukraine?
2: No. No uh they they can't there's there there are some things that um the u.s and russia will continue to cooperate on the international space station for example the iran talks for example but arms control talks are going to be uh, shelved whatever there is in the nuclear posture review about hopes for this or that you you're just not going to see it there's no conceivable way um and this is one of the, the 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 real failures of of the administration policy to base any move on numbers on Russian cooperation. You're effectively Mm -hmm. giving Russia a veto over what the U.S. nuclear force should be. Previous presidents have have done it a different way. For example, George H.W. Bush in 1991 unilaterally got rid of thousands of nuclear weapons he, he declared was no, were no longer necessary. And in response, Mikhail Gorbachev, then head leader of the Soviet Union, followed through on, on the same. But it wasn't required. The Joint mm-hmm. Chiefs of Staff have done a study, and I cite this in the issue brief, that we could reduce our nuclear arsenal by one third. Go down from the the 1,550 operationally deployed strategic weapons allowed under the New START treaty, and cut that by a third, go down to 1,000 deployed weapons, and we still fulfill all our military missions, no matter what the Russians do. So Biden could choose to just implement that Joint Chiefs of Staff study done in, in 2013, um, but but he won't. Why? Not because of military necessity, and that's the underlying. Um, uh, issue I want to get at here. It, it isn't military requirements that keep our nuclear weapons so high. It's not military requirements or, or, or strategic reasoning that say that we have to have a force this large configured in this, this way. It is a combination of inertia and contracts that are pushing through programs that we don't need, but which make uh, arms corporations a lot of money, and they push to lobby For these, and then they have a huge role inside the Pentagon in in actually writing the, the nuclear posture review, writing the document. This nuclear posture review is as if we gave the coal companies the ability to write emission standards. That's basically what you're doing when you give the, the Pentagon the pen and say to them, what do you think our nuclear policy should be? Uh, it, it, it's, it, it's, it's a terrible way to do business. Bill Clinton was the first to issue a nuclear posture review. I hope Biden's will be the last. We have to reform the process if we're going to have any chance of getting a more sensible, safer nuclear posture. Right.
1: And uh, speaking of that kind of lobbying as you noted in your report for Quincy, there's been a lot of fear-mongering about increases in the Chinese arsenal size as well. Uh, but from what we can tell, there's no reason to think that China seeks uh, parity in numbers with Russia and the US. And there doesn't seem to be any evidence that it has changed its own doctrine regarding the use of nuclear weapons.
2: Uh, how much do you think the threat from China's arsenal has been exaggerated? Tremendously. And and this is, has a huge impact on the debate. We have to understand, no matter what... <laughs> You hear about this nuclear posture review. This is a highly political document. I think the the Biden administration has made the decision at the highest level not to make any changes to military budgets or to nuclear weapons because it will make them look weak. And they don't want to do it when, as they will say, when we're confronted by so many challenges abroad. They don't want to do anything that makes them look weak. So if that means throwing another fifty billion dollars on on top of an already large defense budget, but that's what they'll do. In fact, and, and if you look, the, the last Biden budget and what we expect to be the new Biden budget will, in effect, d- do that. And if it means delaying any changes to nuclear posture, they'll do it. And they think of this as something they can pick up later. They can correct later. But now the most important thing is looking tough, looking looking uh, strong. Uh, on this. And, and so China is a big factor there. and But here's the second part of this that's um, frustrating, because if you look at what you actually need to, say, counter the Chinese threat, because let's be clear, China has 300 nuclear weapons. They, about 100 of those could reach the United States on their inter- intercontinental ballistic missiles. You know, one would be one nuclear weapon on an American city would be an, an unacceptable disaster. Ten nuclear weapons on 10 American cities would be a, a, a level of destruction we, we haven't seen since World War II, and a hundred would be a catastrophe beyond human experience. So just that, just what they can do right now is an enormous deterrent to us. But <laughs> two things are going on. One is the Chinese are responding to what we're doing. Because we have made our nuclear weapons more capable, fusing accuracy, uh, and because we've made our conventional weapons more accurate, so conventional weapons can take out targets previously assigned to, to nuclear weapons, and because we're making such a big deal about deploying missile defenses that we claim could defeat Chinese nuclear weapons, or we hope that they could defeat them, the Chinese are responding to make their force more survivable that is to say they're increasing the numbers putting in more deceptive basing practices mobile launchers uh, multiple silos and they're starting to 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 field weapons that can evade any known missile def- defense system this is so they are reacting to what we've been doing we don't pay attention to what we've been doing and we see what they're doing as a threat to us that requires us to respond Now, if this sounds like a vicious cycle, you're getting it. This is the classic dynamic of an arms race. That's what's going on right now. We see all our nuclear deployments as defensive, as sensible, and all of China's nuclear deployments as as a threat that must be countered. Uh, Finally, even in the worst case scenario... If the dire predictions are correct, and China were to quadruple its nuclear force by the end of this decade, as some have feared they might, they would have about 1,200 nuclear weapons. Remember, we have 5,500. They don't come close to what Senator Tom Cotton called nuclear overmatch. It it isn't even a real contest. They're still way behind us. So now's the time to engage in real discussions with China about freezing the Air Force, about reducing ours, so that we don't uh, end up 20 years hence in a nightmare world where there are now not two giant nuclear superpowers, but three, maybe more, nuclear superpowers.
0: Joe, I, I was struck by what you had said earlier in this interview about all of the discussions about our nuclear posture, you know, taking place behind the scenes within this small coterie of special interests, industry interests uh, who are you know linked in with politicians who believe that we should be putting billions of dollars into these new weapons programs without having to explain to the American people what they're even necessary for. At what point did the American people become so detached from this conversation? Because I grew up in the eighties where there was constant discussion about non-proliferation of nuclear weapons. And there are tons of people like yourself who have been active and advocating for non-proliferation for so long. But it seems at, at some point, people like you were becoming unrepresented, mm-hmm. unrepresentative or un- unrepresented in the upper echelons of the administrations where these decisions were actually being made. And now we just have a bunch of industry shills Basically, making these super decisions uh, with billions of dollars in tax money with no debate. Uh, what what happened? Yeah,
2: yeah. Well, although the desire for profits and, and political advantage have always been present in nuclear policy debates for the seventy-eight years now of the nuclear age, it, it, grand strategy used to really be the driver. And these were these were the, the, the factors in, in, in the Kennedy administration view, Johnson, uh, the, the early Reagan administration. This is what drove U.S. nuclear policy. But with the end of the Cold War, all, all, the grand strategic debates disappeared, as did the mass protests. About nuclear weapons policy for for 30, 40 years, all of this was always took place with tremendous public concern, often mass protests, a million people in Central Park in 1982, protesting nuclear weapons, for example. But most people assumed that with the end of the Cold War and the dramatic reductions that followed. We reduced the nuclear stockpiles since the peak of the Cold War by about 85 percent. There used to be almost 70,000 nuclear weapons in the world. Now we're down to 13,000. That's a remarkable achievement. And most people assume, well, there we are. We're on the road to, if not elimination, certainly much lower, safer numbers. It's all done wrong. It's not all done The people who want to keep the nuclear weapons, the people who make money from nuclear weapons, the people who want to use nuclear weapons as a tool for global domination, never went away. They stayed at it. They persisted. And now its I would say it's the three factors that are driving U.S. nuclear policy are not grand strategy, are not true defensive needs, what we need to protect our country, but it's this combination of arguments for global primacy. Um, for political advantage and the drive for profits, and of these, I would say profits is the biggest driver. You, you have to stop thinking about nuclear weapons as just some sort of, um, you know, necessary tool for U.S. national security, and see them for what they are: they're a product. They're a product that 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 we spend about fifty billion dollars a year on. Estimates are we're going to spend two hundred and $34 billion this decade on nuclear weapons. That is a huge market. There, and, and people will spend a lot of money to, to make sure the contracts for those that product continue. And it's and the defense industry, the especially the, the nuclear contractors have learned from big oil, from big pharma. Um, And from big tobacco, how to market their product, how to have how to differentiate their product, to put it in different flavors, different different components, how to penetrate the government agencies that determine the policy and control those agencies, how to penetrate Washington think tanks. Defense contractors have flooded Washington think tanks with grants over the last 20 years, basically muting any criticism. You don't see Criticism of nuclear policy coming out of the Brookings Institution or the Carnegie Endowment, where I I used to work, or any of the big think tanks in Washington anymore. Why not? Well, one of the reasons is that they've gotten these very large grants from defense corporations, and the defense corporations look askance at that. Quite the contrary, you will see defense contractors you know, financing studies from CSIS or Center for New American Security, or of course, the Heritage Foundation, you know, promoting the need for nuclear weapons. So all these factors now play a role in determining nuclear policy. And the primary factor is no longer what's best for U.S. national security.
0: Right. And I guess you answered my question, because if the American people, all they're getting is this narrative that nuclear weapons policy is is riding along in a very positive way. And like you said, end of the Cold War, there's this assumption that uh, there was this drawdown in weapons during the, I believe, the Obama administration. So it, nothing to worry about here. And right. meanwhile, everything's going on behind the scenes.
2: Right. And the Ukraine crisis sort of highlights the stakes here. Yeah. Because at first you think, well, There's a nuclear element here, but it's really kind of vague, right? I mean, Russia has nuclear weapons. We have nuclear weapons. Ukraine used to have nuclear weapons. But what's the real link? Well, the real link is what's happened to defense policy over the last 10 years. And there has been a drive for what they now euphemistically call integrated deterrence, meaning that over the last 10 years, the fire break between conventional and nuclear use has been weakened and in some cases erased. So the fad in national security circles is to see this integration of conventional forces, cyber uh, tools and nuclear weapons as all integrated, meaning and at first if there's a spin on that that says, well, look, we can down reduce the role of nuclear weapons because we have other means for deterrence, conventional and cyber. But the flip side is that they're all seen together. That they're all put in So, and, and the argument is you have to dominate at every step of the escalatory ladder in order to win. So you need the credible use of nuclear weapons early in a conflict in order to reinforce your other tools of deterrence. And this gets very dangerous. And when you look at Ukraine. Or you look at the situation around Taiwan, and you look at how the United States could actually stop a determined conventional assault in those areas. You quickly come to the use of tactical nuclear weapons, right. and these are exactly the weapons that have been introduced recently. Um, Trump started a new sea-launched cruise missile. He put low-yield nuclear weapons on, on submarines. There are t- there is calls for other types of nuclear weapons that are more usable. They could be used at smaller levels and smaller numbers to what to 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 uh, to what they call enhanced deterrence, what I call dancing with nuclear war.
0: So when when you hear pundits say, oh, well, this Ukraine crisis is actually pitting two nuclear powers at each other's throats. This could this could mean war, nuclear war. That's not just hyperbole when you think about it from what you're saying.
2: Oh, no. Oh, no. I mean, for example, if this were to lead to a large scale nuclear war in, in Eastern Europe and Putin were to start to lose, he might be very tempted because Russia has a mirror image of what the U.S. does. He might be very tempted to use a nuclear weapon to prevent that loss. Because this could mean not just the loss of a battle, loss of a war. It could mean the loss of his rule. So he's got a very high interest in staying, if winning, any conflict. And and there are Russian doctrines that that are that call for escalation in order to de-escalate. Articles that have been written by senior uh, Russian military officials who argued that the early use of a nuclear weapon in a conventional battle that Russia is losing would be a signal to the West of how serious the stakes are for Russia, and they should back off. So you can quickly see how uh, 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 winning a conventional war against Russia could lead to nuclear use. And what would our response be? Would we back off? That's not what U.S. doctrine says. We would meet a Russian first use with our own use, and then we're off to the races.
0: Well, I'm not on that note, Joe, we have a run out of time, but I really appreciate you coming on the show, particularly today. Uh, we are going to be probably publishing this earlier in the week than we usually do, so we can be on top of the headlines, and we're so happy you could be a part of that.
2: Well, I'm sorry to be the bearer of bad news, but thank you very much for having me on. Thank
0: you. Thank you. Thank you again for tuning into today's episode. If you enjoy and value real conversations such as these, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcaster of choice. Right now, Crashing the War Party can be found on Stitcher, TuneIn, and at Substack, at crashingthewarparty.substack.com where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Special thanks to our editor, Remzo W. Martinez, the Crashing the War Party team, and to you, our listeners. Let's create a more peaceful world one episode at a time.